Welcome to the Officer Media Group Roll Call Podcast. Officer Roll Call is meant to inform and entertain. Now, let's get into this episode. Welcome to this podcast series on active shooter events, sponsored by FirstNet, powered by AT&T. In an emergency, whether it's an active shooter situation or a natural disaster, you need a reliable way to communicate with the extended public safety community. That's why FirstNet is here for you. It's the first and only nationwide communications platform built with and for first responders. With a dedicated platform, prioritized connection, no throttling, you can communicate when it's most critical. Visit firstnet.com to learn more. When every second counts, first responders count on FirstNet. Today I'm here with uh, editor Paul Peluso, and this is number two in our six-part series on active shooter response uh, and evolution. How are you doing today, Mr. Peluso? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, Frank. Thanks for having me. Oh, I thank you for being here to help narrate the, the this podcast. Um, like I said, this is number two out of six. In our first one, we talked about Columbine. Uh, people talk about it as the Pearl Harbor of active shooter, active shooter events, and it really called attention to what the law enforcement protocols were at the time um, and how deficient they were when it came to actually saving those kids' lives. Again, as I've said many times in the past, I'm not being critical critical of the officers that responded. They were following their training policy and protocol. Um, what I want to look at today is kind of how they got to that that place where uh, they arrived, shots were being fired inside, they took up positions of cover outside, formed a perimeter, fed intelligence, and waited for SWAT teams to arrive. Uh, and to get there, we have to go back to August of 1966 and uh, and what's been called the Texas Tower shooting. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think my co-host, Mr. Peluso, was even alive in 1966. I sure was not. I was a whopping two years old, but through my career uh, in law enforcement, a lot of the training, um, you know, we took a look at this event uh, and how some of the tactics that Charles Whitman used um, really gave him an advantage. Uh, and it's a lot of it's combat oriented from the position of height, the elevated position he was in, to having been trained as a marksman in the Marine Corps, uh, to his preparations that he made, and the fact that pure and simple law enforcement at the time didn't have special response teams. Uh, were you aware of that? Did you know that that we didn't even have SWAT teams in the mid-60s? Well, yeah, I mean, this was kind of one of the the earlier mass shootings, right? It, as far as like modern mass shootings go. Um, so, yeah, like, like when we talk about Columbine and that being kind of a, um, you know, a touch point in um, mass shooting response and um, critical incident response, as far as that goes, like this definitely was one of those where it really uh, changed a lot of things for law enforcement. It did. And just like Columbine changed patrol protocol from arrive, set up a perimeter and wait. Um, when the Texas Tower incident happened, uh, the police didn't have that option. SWAT teams literally didn't exist, uh, at least not the way we know them today in August of 1966. So the police officers on the scene just had to figure out a plan and execute it and deal with it. Um and in fact, uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities. And I hate to say this, we 
we we used to do a series. We put out an article twice a month on active shooter events, and we looked at the lessons learned um, and, and how policy or protocol changed as, as a result. We looked at shooting events where the shooter was actually not even on scene, but shooting from a different location. There's a school shooting where uh, the, the shooter actually was across the street in a house shooting at the school. Everybody responded to the school looking for a shooter, and they had their backs to the house where the shooter actually existed. You learn lessons from that, right? So um, with Columbine, we learned we couldn't sit outside, but we learned uh, to sit outside after the development of SWAT teams. And the Texas Tower incident was one of the things that caused SWAT teams to be developed. Now, if you look back, if you talk to any veteran SWAT officer, retired SWAT officer, uh, every, every one of them will tell you that he belonged to the first or one of the first SWAT teams that existed. Um, the LAPD claims 1964 development of their SWAT team. Philadelphia claims, or LAPD is 66 and Philadelphia is 64. Number of different places. They all claim they had the first SWAT team. Uh, but the reality is that before the mid-1960s, before the Watts riots, before the Texas Tower incident, there weren't any SWAT teams. Uh, but once they were developed, then patrol protocols changed rather than the patrol officers having to respond and deal with anything. Uh, all they had to do was set up a perimeter, <clears throat> feed intelligence as best they could, and wait for SWAT to come handle it. And that's how we did business till 1999 when Columbine changed again. But let's take a look at some of the similarities that Charles Whitman's shooting, his attack from the Texas Tower had. Um, with some other shootings, uh, specifically the one I'm thinking about at the moment, was the shooting at Virginia Tech. Paul, did you know that before Sung Hee Cho did his attack at Norris Hall, he killed two other people uh, at a at, at a uh, a dorm building across on the other side of campus? Were you aware of the separation of, of murder scenes? Yes, yes, I was. And yeah, that one was in um, you know 2007. So of course, you know. That I actually was um had just started working um you know for officer.com in 2006. So that we really did a lot of coverage of that one. And it really in, in the age of digital media, um, we covered that one. Uh it was one of the first, you know, mass shootings that we really covered a lot on because we had only been around for a few years at that point. And a lot of places that reported on it. Yeah. report a certain number of casualties but they don't report though they count the two murders in the different building on the opposite side mm -hmm. of campus they don't talk about the time separation almost an hour and a half they don't talk about the different locations very much and and the reason i bring it up is because charles whitman before he went to the texas tower and killed 15 people and wounded 31 others um he murdered his wife and his mom stabbed him to death uh, before he went to the Texas Tower to commit that act. And there are other uh, active shooter events that we've documented where the killer does that. They they commit what I've come to consider preparatory murders. Like, I don't want to leave my mom and dad around to be embarrassed after I do what I do. So I'm going to kill them and save them the embarrassment, if that's a justification that they can buy off on whatever. Uh, apparently, Whitman um had left some documentation to that effect that he didn't want his family to have to live what with what his actions were going to be but uh this is something that we 
that's not often discussed in active shooter response training. It's not something usually discussed in risk and threat assessment training where active shooter events are concerned. But this, the preparatory murders and the separation of location is something that uh, I find kind of interesting. And then um, his weapon of choice. Did, did you see his arsenal? Uh, no, I I didn't see his arsenal in the, the tower shooting. So if uh, you, if you look at information is available online, like you yeah. said, the wonderful world of the digital age, he had, uh, as I recall, at least three different rifles and a modified shotgun, and he may have had a handgun or two um, that he took uh, all of this stuff up to the platform uh, on the Texas Tower. Um. Yeah, he had a Smith and Wesson Model 19, a 357 Magnum revolver. He had a little 25 caliber semi-auto. He had a nine millimeter Luger pistol. I mean, he really armed himself up and he he prepared well. He took food. He took uh, water. I mean, uh, it's interesting to see this assortment of stuff that he took up to the platform to prepare for a siege. Yeah, and Whitman's background was, you know, he had a military background. Definitely played into to some of this, it looks like. Oh, no doubt. So he's a Marine Corps trained shooter, and, and marksmanship is something. And I imagine that's why his rifle was his weapon of choice, because the Marine Corps chain trained and still does today far more with a rifle than with the handgun, um, as compared to Cho, who had little to no training. So his weapons of choice were handguns and, and used up close and personal, so to speak. Um, but Whitman's preparation uh you know he packs a footlocker which is uh, in the mid 60s the marine corps footlocker is pretty much going to be something everybody in basic training recognized um he has a bolt action rifle a pump rifle the three handguns a shotgun um over 700 rounds of ammunition he took food coffee vitamins um, two drugs, dexedrine and excedrin, and we call them drugs, two pharmaceuticals, um, earplugs, water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete. I don't know what he planned to do with the machete. Three knives, and he had a radio, toilet paper. He was planning on being there a while. A razor. Now, I don't know if they mean a shaving razor or a straight razor. And a bottle of deodorant. Dude was planning on being on the top of that tower for a good long time. Um, it just, Paul, Paul, I'm kind of, I'm kind of speechless. I'm kind of, here you got a guy who nobody can figure out why at the time, um, he murders wife and mom goes up to the observation deck hours later and starts shooting kills 15 people, including an unborn child, uh, and wounds 31 more. That's that's 46 casualties total. And I, I'm not, I could be wrong, but I think that's uh, one of the highest casualty rates we've seen for active shooters. Yeah, one of the highest rates, and um, up until the Virginia Tech shooting was the, you know, deadliest uh, mass shooting on a campus, so. Where, where does Columbine even register in there? Um, I, I can't remember how many were what, what the casualty rate was at Columbine. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
So what, what what do we look at as lessons learned for the University of Texas Tower shooting and as it how it how it helped us change doing business um, moving into the end of the 20th century? Um, you know, I, we look at the development of the SWAT teams. Well, the response, right? Like that's kind of the biggest thing here is how the officers responded to this shooting versus how, you know, in the in the near, you know, future and then distant future now, uh, we respond to shootings such as this one. Yeah, I mean, and and that's a a universally applicable response change when you look at the development of SWAT teams and the protocols and the policies that all that all affected it. Um, you know, ultimately Whitman gets stopped by, uh, it was, uh, one police officer and one of the university officers, I think, if I remember correctly. And, you know, essentially they just find their way, they, they get to the tower and they have to run potentially exposed to, to being shot at by him, by Whitman. They go, have to go all the way up to the, the observation deck where he's barricaded himself. They have to break through the barricades and then engage him with gunfire and, and, and end the siege. And even now, we have a hard time saying and kill him, right? Um, we don't shoot people to kill them. We we shoot people to neutralize them, to stop uh, their their violent acts. Um, and at the end of the day, when you think about it, what happened at the Texas Tower with the police response as far as, uh, you know, a couple of officers who make a plan and then they decide we're we're going to go up there and we're going to we're going to confront the shooter that's kind of where we've come back to today where officers show up you grab what the equipment they have and and make entry to go confront a shooter 33 years later and 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 that it, but and that's what it took after all the development of SWAT and everything else so before i move on i want to talk about this motivation thing do you do you think that I wonder if something's going to happen in the future that's going to change it again? What what our next evolution is going to be? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe technology plays even more of a role. Maybe you know we have ro robots respond to these things. I I don't know. I I know um, a lot of the AI we use. Uh, now and more into the future may really change response where you don't necessarily have officers go into these situations. But I mean, when you look at the response of this one, Frank, it really was, I don't want to say thrown together, but you, you had some, you know, you had off duty officers responding and officers from different posts and it wasn't, you know, a, a coordinated response really because you know, like you said we didn't have SWAT teams and I think that's what's going to drive the future before we go on I want to remind our listeners that this this podcast series is sponsored by FirstNet uh, powered by AT&T in an emergency like an active shooter situation as we're discussing you need a reliable way to communicate with the extended public safety community FirstNet is the first and only nationwide communications platform built with and for first responders providing a dedicated platform with a prioritized connection and no throttling. Visit firstnet.com to learn more. 
And then when you do think about the impact uh, and Paul, you and I talked about this before we started recording this podcast, the impact that the potential impact of technology today, um, if there had been interoperability between radio systems and uh, the plethora of portable radios, then during in 1966 that there are today, if there was uh, GPS tracking, if there was, well, I mean, I, I can't imagine robots, like you said, if there was drones, can you imagine how different the response would have been in 1966 if we had some of the technology available today? I mean, just think about the, you know, situational awareness of these officers that ascended up the tower. Like, they didn't know that there wasn't anything they could know. Um, they didn't have, you know, that ability to, to feed off information that, um, you know, the command staff could have had or anybody on the ground could have had. Um, so just, you know, without that technology uh, makes it difficult. I can't even imagine if were they sure they only had one shooter. Um, yeah. And when you think about it, think about the power of, of a drone. If it was available, then what they could have known um, as far as the number of shooters and the, the type of weapons that he had. Um, you know, think about having to breach the door and go in and confront him. Like you said, if we'd had a, a robot, a, a tracked robot, uh, they could have breached that door, dropped a distractionary device. And then they, I mean, even today, we, in today's world, probably with the amount of time we have preparation, the information we could get, probably wouldn't have needed to shoot him. Probably he'd have been engaged with less lethal or non-lethal uh, types of weaponry, do you think? Yeah, yeah there, there's a possibility. It's, it's such a different world. And it, real quick, um, before we, we wrap up this podcast, I want to talk about um, so motivation, nobody really is 100% sure, obviously, with any active shooter, especially if they're dead after it's over, after they've been neutralized. Um, you know, the, the autopsy after the fact found a tumor in Charles Whitman's brain the size of a pecan. And there's been a lot of discussion in recent year, years about uh, whether or not mental instability uh, emotional instability, brain injuries, or other diseases or illnesses, such as a tumor, cancer, whatever, causes these violent tendencies. Um, you know, after the shooting at Virginia Tech, there was uh, a part of the governor's report mentioned that Cho had a speech disorder, and uh, although never diagnosed, it was suspected that he was challenged with a, a a mental challenge, a, a mental, a mental instability or developmental disability. Um, and I look back at Charles Whitman having had a brain tumor. Can you think of anything? I, 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 I my memory is not always the greatest. When we talk about all these other active shooters and stuff, can you think of any other ones where that's been brought up as a, a potential contributing factor? No, not, not that I can remember. I guess that'd have to be another research project that gets yeah. done. Um, I I think one more thing to to mention to Frank with this is, uh, you know, it says that they formed the uh, University of um, Texas, uh, formed their uh, campus police with the mm -hmm. year after this in earnest. Um, that that is, you know, along with SWAT, that uh, that the formation of campus police departments 
to have a better understanding of what goes on, um, what's going on on campus. Uh, you know, the, the, yeah, the powers of campus police and and how big they are, you know, can be debated. Um, but being able to work with the off-campus uh, police departments as well and kind of relay information, that's very important, not having one. And the city of Austin Police Department had to respond to this. It uh, does make it difficult. You know, in the next evolution of that, and, and I'm glad you brought it up, the next evolution of that, though, uh, especially with Columbine not being a college campus, being a high school, yeah. And, and we've had shootings at middle schools and elementary schools. Um, the next evolution of that is the, is the school resource officers and having them right there in the school. We're not talking about on a college campus where you still have response time. We're talking about in the school where they're a lot closer. Um, that, I, I think, empowers us a lot to neutralize uh, active shooters when they occur and potentially, and we'll never have a way of measuring this, how much they prevent before it ever starts. I think that's got to be a huge blessing. All right. Um, any other thoughts on this or we need to wrap this up, Paul? Yeah, I think we covered most of it, Frank. Um, just, you know, like we said at the beginning, looking far that far back than 1966, how much things have really changed um, since then. Uh, leaps and bounds as far as response to these mass shootings, um, though, you know, of course, it hasn't stopped them from happening. They happen at a, an alarming rate in some cases uh, that, you know, law enforcement continues to progress and kind of, you know, keep pace with uh, what, what we face out there. I think it's vitally important that law enforcement continues to progress and not we don't need 33 more years before the next evolution, right? And we've seen yeah. that. We started in 2000 with kind of the basic four-man diamond active shooter response protocols. And that even just since then, you're talking about 20, probably about 20 years, single shooter, uh, single officer response. You know, first officer goes in. And we saw down in Parkland um, how if an agency doesn't keep their policies and training up to date, then they can end up doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to thank you today though. And I also want to, this, this is the perfect thing. So for number three, uh, in our podcast series, this is a six part series. This one that, we're, that, that you're listening to is number two for number three. I think really, I'm going to get a hold of somebody from AT&T at FirstNet, uh, and talk about some of the tools that FirstNet has available for communication and, and interoperability and how they can help empower this mass casualty response kind of thing. And uh, maybe we'll talk about some other technologies in a later episode that can be used for active shooter response. I think that's an awesome idea. I'm glad you brought that up in this one. Yeah, thanks, Frank. And yeah, I think that is a great idea. And uh, just to be able to look at how technology has changed, and especially, especially with interoperability, it, uh, it helps a lot. All right. I want to thank all of our listeners. Um, I want to thank our sponsor, FirstNet, powered by AT&T. Paul, I want to thank you for all your time today, and uh, I want everybody to stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Officer Roll Call. Be sure to check back every two weeks for a new episode. Stay safe.